Hey, all you nature nerds. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. This is Megan and Jen. We're actually in two different locations, so this is going to be a fun editing situation later. Uh, so Jen is not across from me. I feel very lonely sitting in this room alone, well with Saber. But I'm here. It took us like most of the morning just to figure this out. So hopefully, uh, we'll see if this works. This is like teleworking, but podcast. <laughs> I just want to say that I have a couple things I'm going to mention for science news today. They're both like either kind of funny, I mean, a little bit sad, but funnier and like more uplifting because you told me that today you're going to be talking about something that's a real downer. I mean, it is, but it's it's more serious, I would say, than maybe our past few episodes. We're not talking about like dolphin masturbation. No, we're not talking about that. Nice. All right. So I'm going to start in with my first. It's like a science news. Basically, what happened is we made our dolphin post and we got a bunch of people who commented on it, you know, after they listened. A lady, Jen Eels, like E-E-L-L-S. <laughs> I just had to laugh. That is amazing. First of all, Jen, and then Eels. I love it. Thank you for that. Uh, She wrote to us and said, have you heard of Margaret Ho Lovat? Jen, have you heard of Margaret Ho Lovat? No. She's this woman who, uh, this is what Jen wrote. She lived with a dolphin as part of a scientific study, all caps, and she was the eel. Like, not by any choice of her own, I would hope. Where are we going here? Oh, man, we're going someplace a little bit nuts. When she was a young girl, uh, she really loved animals. And her mom read her this book about a cat who could talk. And she was super into it. She was like, this is amazing. Um, And that sparked this lifelong fascination that she had with animals. And then in the 1960s, she was told about this experiment that was going on in the Caribbean island of St. Thomas. It was 1963. Her brother-in-law contacts her and he's like, there's this secret lab. Uh, NASA and the Navy were funding a project Mm. to see if dolphins could speak through their blowholes, make words like humans, like English words. Oh my God. Again, this is reminding me of the talking dog book that we both read in Peace Corps, right? And it was just like, so strange. Yeah. So strange. She goes down to this lab. She meets this guy, Gregory Bateson. He's like the director of the lab. He really likes her. He's like, hey, I want you to meet these dolphins. There's three of them there, two female dolphins and a male. So there's this article that I read from mirror.co.uk that was written in 2020 about this. She tells them how her initial introduction to the dolphins, what it was like. She says, Peter, Pamela, and Sissy. Sissy was the biggest, pushy, loud. She sort of ran the show. Pamela was very shy and fearful, and Peter was a young guy. He was sexually coming of age and a bit naughty. Hmm. I love that his name is Peter. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) So she meets them. And actually, what they had done is they took an empty house and they filled it with seawater, the scientists could live in the house and monitor the dolphins 24-7. And they filled it with seawater about up to their knees. So this can't be comfortable for the dolphins. I mean, it just sounds awful to me. And there were, I guess there were two levels. So they're hanging out in like two feet of water? Yeah. 
just chilling out i guess like through most of the house i think they had pools that they would spend time in but also they would be in the house with the people who lived in the house um and you can see photos of like she's sitting at a desk there's a, a telephone on the table like all of this it's nuts science in the in the 60s right margaret spends all of her time there and she starts to form a close bond with peter she says peter liked to be with me he would rub himself on my knee my foot or my hand and i allowed that I wasn't uncomfortable as long as it wasn't too rough. In the beginning, I would put him on the elevator and say, you go play with the girls for a day. So I guess he was in like one tank and then the girls were on a lower tank. So he would have to be moved in like a dolphin elevator mm -hmm. to go down to the other tank to, to hang out with the girls. But then I guess that got too cumbersome for her to always be moving him. So she was like, it was just easier to incorporate uh, him essentially getting off on her and let it happen. It was very precious and very gentle. Peter was right there. He knew I was right there. Um, so I guess this became a regular part of their interactions. Wow. She said, yeah, she said it was sexual on his part. It was not sexual on mine. Sensuous, perhaps. She goes on to say it would just become part of what was going on, like an itch. Just get rid of that. We'll scratch it and we'll move and be done and move on. Okay. She said she was there to get to know Peter, and that was just a part of Peter. I guess a, a few years later, the funding ran out because they never were able to get the dolphins to actually speak. Really? Uh, and so NASA and the Navy were like, you know what? This is not working. <laughs> it was just dolphin porn. Yeah. And so they ended up shipping Peter to Florida. So he was about a thousand miles away from the lab they were in. And very shortly after, like a few weeks after, he committed dolphin suicide, where he took a breath. And he went, just floated down to the bottom and didn't breathe again. Very sad. Oh, my God. Margaret said that she got a phone call from John Lilly. John Lilly was kind of like the guy who was running the whole experiment. He let her know, like, hey, Peter committed suicide. The lab's vet, Andy Williamson, he said that the dolphin's death was due to a broken heart. Uh, he said Margaret could rationalize it. But when she left, could Peter? Here's a love of his life gone. Because I mean, he's, I mean, essentially like kind of mating with her, even if it's yeah. just like they're not having actual intercourse. Well, and he also was separated from the other two yes. that he was with probably and put by himself, maybe alone or with other dolphins that he doesn't know or yeah, that is so sad. There's this animal rights organization, the Dolphin Project. Uh, there's a guy, Rick O'Berry. He said, dolphins are not automatic air breathers like we are. Every breath is a conscious effort. If life becomes too unbearable, the dolphins just take a breath and they sink to the bottom. They just don't take the next breath. This experiment was created by John, Dr. John Lilly, who's a, a neuroscientist, and he'd been studying large brain mammals for years. And he was hoping that this experiment was going to be you know, like super breakthrough experiment. Actually, it wasn't just the kind of interesting relationship or controversial relationship that Margaret had with Peter, but also they, I guess, had been giving LSD to the dolphins to try to get them, like, I guess, enhance their abilities or open their mind more. Oh my God. Yeah, the 60s. Got shut down. Seems like Margaret remembers her time with Peter very fondly. Obviously, she had a connection with him. I, there's a lot of articles that are like woman admits that she had sex with dolphin and i'm like eh, she didn't i mean it's not like the best situation <laughs> like i mean it's a little strange i googled it while you were talking and what i came up with was an article <laughs> that says interspecies sex yes. humans and dolphins yes. and it's like a cart like a drawing of her like with a dolphin between her legs yeah 
there's kind of a picture of her where Peter is like astride her lap almost, you know, and she's like her head is tilted upwards and her eyes are closed and she's smiling. It's it's a little too much, you know. <laughs> anyway, so that's our first kind of little science news. The second thing that I want to mention came from another listener from Lilybug and Lilybug is this adorable pit bull. Lilybug's owner sent us a message. They said, I was reading Nat Geo this morning and saw some science news. And it is about the malaria vaccine for children that the World Health Organization is recommending that kids use. So it looks like I'm going to probably post this on like our stories so you can go in and read about it. But it looks like they're, you know, still working on always working yeah. on the malaria vaccine. And it's kind of a historic moment. WHO Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom Oh, man, that last name gets me. I'm just going to say G. It said using this vaccine on top of existing tools to prevent malaria could save tens of thousands of young lives each year. So super cool. I thought that was like a nice little uplifting moment. So thank yeah, you. Finally. Yeah. Thank you, Lilybug, for sharing that. It was great. Well, that was amazing. I had not heard about such things uh, with dolphins, although I'm not surprised. But I feel like when in her mind, she's like, this is just a dolphin. I used to work at this little feed store and the owner had a had a macaw, a blue and gold macaw. Yeah. Loved me. And he would always vomit on me because that's how much he loved me. <laughs> And, you know, I let him go for it. Listen, sir, this is your sign of love. And he would just throw up on me and pull me over and like, give me his like, you know how parrots do their eyes like they dilate their eyes in and out. Oh, yeah. And like bob mm -hmm. their head. He was like, oh, yeah, come here. Give me your <laughs> hand. And I would like put it in. He'd like, Bleh. he's like, that is for you, my love. Yeah, it was. It was like that. You know, I can I can see that. You were like his baby. I think probably the media took it a, a little, little too, too far. far. Well, it's sensational. I think just the headline. Uh, Megan. Yes. I have a very special story today. Actually, I have like a long list of listener recommended stories that I'm going to do. One in particular uh, is going to be for our February patron Excellent. Patreon bonus. This one actually is one I've wanted to do for a while, but I kept putting it off. You know, it's weird. I don't know if you experience this too, but you'll have all these stories in your mind and you're like, I'm going to do this one. But when you start doing it, it just doesn't yeah. like interest you yeah. at the moment. And then you find something else random or something from a long time ago and you're like, I'm doing this. Yeah, no, absolutely. This one, it spoke to me this week. And I think most of the episodes that I'm going to be covering fit in with the Women in Science. Oh, yeah. Which is coming up in March. So this is a Women in Science episode. And then we also have our Peace Corps episode coming up too. I'm sure you know where I'm going to go with this, but I'm going to start out talking about mountain gorillas. I'm kind of excited for this. All right. Let me ask you a real quick question. Were those gorillas in the mist? <laughs> You know, it's really misty in those mountains. Well, that just goes straight to Lord of the Rings immediately for me, the misty mountains. <laughs> I'm going to go through some gorilla biology real quick. Cool. Because learning. Gorillas is the genus gorilla. <laughs> They're one of our cousins. It's the genus of primates containing the largest. So these are the largest of the great apes. Okay, I'm going nice. to tell you some okay. stuff you already know. But, you know, there might be some things you learn in here. They share 98% of our DNA. They're the one of the closest living relatives to humans. And we split from our common ancestor, they say around 10 million years ago. The chimpanzee and the bonobo are a little closer, but not much. Um, the other great ape outside of those three is the orangutan. Which you love. We did have a chimpanzee ep episode, but we didn't really talk about Jane Goodall too much. Just a little. I'm going to talk about her a little more in this one. Gorillas, they only live in these tropical rainforests in equatorial Africa. 
So there's like a really small area where you can find these. And most people say, recognize that there's two species and four subspecies. Basically, your eastern and your western gorillas. So your western lowland gorilla, which is the one that you will see at zoos, mostly. The species, it's gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. Just <laughs> That's that's the scientific Amazing. Name. G3. There were like three gorillas sitting there and they're like, gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. Done. <laughs> Falling under the Western Lowland Gorilla or the Western Gorilla is the Cross River Gorilla. And that's huh. Gorilla, Gorilla, Dili. This one is probably the most critically endangered. There's only about 300 or less individuals. The Western Lowland Gorilla, there's a lot around a little over 300,000. For the Eastern, you have the Eastern Lowland Gorilla and there's less than about 4,000 of those. And then we have the mountain gorilla, which is falls under the eastern side. And there's right now about a little over a thousand. And I'll talk about that in a second. Do you want to guess what you call a group of gorillas? Yeah, I'm just going to go with G3, like a G3 summit. <laughs> They're called a troop or a band. Man. You should know that. Band nerd. Wow, Jen. <laughs> so the adults have long muscular arms and they're 15 to 20 percent longer than their legs because you know knuckle walkers and the males are about twice as heavy as the females they can get to be up to six feet tall which is wild when they stand up and in the wild they weigh they can weigh almost 500 pounds so captive gorillas of both sexes in zoos can get pretty overweight and so they can be more heavy i get it they have nothing better to do eating their troubles away for sure um gorillas live in these family groups ranging from anywhere from like six to 30 in a group. And it's usually led by one or sometimes two or sometimes even more silverback males, depending on like if it's his sons, sometimes they'll stick around and just wait to take that position. Sometimes it'll be like brothers. So that might be a bigger group. That's cool. Yeah. Keep it in the family. Yeah. So other members would be like females, infants, juveniles, young adult males, which they call blackbacks because they haven't gotten old enough to get the silver on their back once they reach maturity. There could be like adult females that come in from another group. But if that happens or say like a silverback goes to another group, a lot of times that's when infants will be killed because they want to have their own baby with the female, which is pretty sad. But I say it doesn't happen like too often. Like these groups pretty much stay together. They're vegetarians. The Eastern gorillas eat like leaves, stalks, shoots. But when you go to the Western gorillas, there's much more fruit in their diet just because that's where they are. They hate water supposedly. But in some areas, when you get close to Cameroon and some others for the um, Western lowland gorillas, you'll see them like walking in like waist deep waters to get like aquatic plants. So they're not swimmers. They hate it. It's just out of necessity, I'm sure. I was just making the connection that they're probably not swimmers because they're probably not, don't have a lot of fat. When you see them at zoos and stuff, they have water separating them. A lot of, a lot of species that don't like water, they'll have like a moat or something right. separating them so they can't get climb out or something, which makes me sad. But anyway. It's like they're using fear as a tactic to keep them from uh, jumping over and being free. Yeah. In the wild, they spend most of their time foraging and resting, and I'm sure even in captivity. And then they'll travel within a few hundred meters every day just just to go and like look for food and cruise around. And then every night they'll make a nest. So they just break like bend branches and break things. And then they'll make this nest that they sleep in on the ground, sometimes in like low trees. So that's a way that a lot of people can track them is by finding these nests and seeing how fresh everything is. 
Right. Like, okay, they just slept here last night. So they're going to be within this range. And that's how they would find them. The females will give birth about every four years, but there's no breeding season. And they actually are pregnant. Their gestation period is eight and a half months. So similar, right? Yeah, very similar. They'll give birth to like a single baby or sometimes twins, but they said it's super rare for them. And the newborn only weighs about four and a half pounds. The first three months, they're completely helpless. And they'll sleep with their mom and stay with them for like several years. These are like slow growing. The females actually don't reach maturity until they're about 10 years old. The males, usually they reach sexual maturity about nine, but they don't reproduce until they're more physically mature, which is at like 12 to 15 years. It's kind of like boys hit puberty early, but it doesn't mean that they're going to do anything until they're older (laughs) and have a good job and went to college, hopefully. They need to be at least 35. (laughs) 40. I mean, come on. (laughs) For these male gorillas, most of them will will leave the group that they're born in because obviously there's already like a leader and they need to go try to find some ladies. So they'll like go look for other females and try to gather some like a harem. (laughs) And sometimes they might even try to like steal or kidnap females from either their group or another group. That's when sometimes there is some, the infants will die because he's trying to start his own thing and he has to... He's got to get rid of that other genetic material. Yes, exactly. So sad. Poor babies. The life expectancy for these guys is about 35 years, um, although captive gorillas have lived to be in their 40s. For the mountain gorillas, and this is, I think, as of 2019, and I haven't seen a more recent number or census, was 1,063 in the wild. Oh. The new census will come out every five to 10 years. Maybe we'll see one in the next year or so. Like I said, these mountain gorillas, they're subspecies of eastern gorillas. And so they live in these elevations of around 8,000 to 13,000 feet. Their fur is different because it's colder. They have longer and thicker fur, and it makes them more adorable. Bluefier. These gorillas, and I think most in general, can be identified by their unique nose prints. Everybody has a different little nose, which I think is so cute. That's super cute. So I guess if like they were doing some sort of forensic evidence, it would be like a nose print versus a thumbprint. Oh. <laughs> All gorillas, the two species, four subspecies, are listed as critically endangered until 2018. And this particular group went up to a thousand, which doesn't seem like much. Yeah. But I guess because the IUCN looks at how much threat they are under. And what's happened, and I'll talk about this more, is that a lot of the threats were removed. So they were like, this population is growing. The threats aren't there anymore. So we can take them off this critically endangered listing. And so now they're just listed as endangered. The Western lowland gorillas, which have the highest population of over 300,000, they are still critically endangered because those threats are still there. How close to extinction are you? And if those threats are gone, like nobody's poaching anymore, then I guess you're going to continue to increase. But it takes years. They only have like one baby every few years or five years or so. For the mountain gorillas, there's two isolated groups. One is in the Virunga volcanoes. This region kind of spans national parks in across Uganda, Rwanda, and the Democratic um, Republic of Congo, which I'll just call the DRC. Um, and the other one is called the Bwindi Impenetrable National Park. I like that, impenetrable. <laughs> like, you can't get in here. <laughs> and it's in Uganda. And that one connects to another nature reserve in the DRC called the Sarmbwe Natural Reserve. These are all in high altitude mountainous areas where there's bamboo forests and surrounded by, when you go down more, there's agriculture and people like settlements, right? I did not know this. So maybe this is like an interesting fact. 
there are no mountain gorillas in any zoos anywhere. Oh. There are no mountain gorillas in captivity. Is there a reason why? Apparently, they just cannot survive in captivity. And they think it's because of their special diet. So in the 60s and 70s, there were a bunch of attempts, which really sucks, to capture live mountain gorillas. So they could start a captive population. Zoos were like, go bring me some baby mountain gorillas. And people went out and they basically murdered a bunch of adults and the mother to bring back these babies. Mm. And they died. People are the freaking worst. Right now, there's 44 habituated mountain gorilla families across Uganda, Rwanda, and the DRC. Um, and they range from like 10 family members, but some have up to 40. Because they're in these areas that have seen so much human violence, war, chaos, it's really affected not only their habitat, but also them, right? There's agri more agriculture, there's more illegal mining that's happened in those areas, forest destruction. A lot of people put snares out to catch these like certain kind of other species like deer and whatnot, and they get caught in these snares. And maybe before they were catching them for, they were poaching them for bush meat because they're so big and they can get a lot of meat from them. But now the threat of snares is still an issue. Climate change is also an issue because obviously they're having to move to higher elevations or um, adapt to warmer temperatures in different areas. And it changes the forest and what they eat, yeah. right? Um, and people also moving closer to them, just people being in the area, whether for good or bad, can bring diseases. And they're just like us, right? Pretty much. So they're susceptible to all the same things. And actually, a lot of gorillas across the board died when there was the big Ebola oh. outbreak. It really affected them. And we know that in some of the zoos, they were getting COVID-19 as well. Oh, wow. When we're looking at these numbers, now they're over a thousand. That was not the case 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. The numbers were really low. We can safely say that the reason that Mount Gorillas are back from the brink of extinction is because of one woman, Diane Fossey. Let's talk about her. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. So back in the day, I know I read Gorillas in the Mist, but it's been so long ago and watch the movie, right? We have all, a lot of us saw the movie with Sigourney Reaver. Did you watch it? I have never seen it. No. Really? Now I'm going to go watch it. Good movie. Sigourney Weaver. I mean, come on. When I told you that that meme that you put up with the cat and the Sigourney Weaver, I was like, that's like an episode hint. It was like <laughs> foreshadowing. She is described as, and I'm reading this straight from encyclopedia.com, a controversial American primatologist who waged an unrelenting battle to save the mountain gorillas of Central Africa. They gave her a name. I mean, she was there for a number of years. They called her Niramakabeli. I could be saying that completely wrong, but it's it, the meaning of that is the woman who lives alone on the mountain. Is that like the gorilla version of like a cat lady? <laughs> Pretty much. Most of the information here I got from encyclopedia.com and I read a bunch of articles, but a, so many of them were either left out a lot of details about her personality and she had quite a personality or they were really, I felt, pretty harsh on her and her personality and the things that she did basically saying she was a bad scientist because of some of the things she did and I just I just feel like it's not right then there was this other one from Vanity Fair and it was shortly after her death in 1986 and then I think they put it out again in 1995 maybe they edited some things because maybe mm -hmm. more and it's called The Fatal Obsession of Diane Fossey. And it's by Alex Shomatov. It's a super long article, but I suggest you read it if you have time. So Diane Fossey was born January 16th, 1932, around San Francisco. Her mom was like this really beautiful, petite model. 
an actress. Her name was Kitty. Her biological father, apparently he was an alcoholic. They divorced. He moved out of the house and her mom remarried eventually this wealthy guy named Richard Price. And I'm just going to say probably they called him Dick. (laughs) He was a dick. He was a building contractor. Her dad tried to stay in touch with her, but her mom, the mom was like, no, get away. I'm with my new husband. We're doing our thing. But this guy was a really shitty stepdad. He did not even let her eat dinner with them. She had to share her meals in the kitchen with the housekeeper and was a lot of times left with her aunt and uncle. It was kind of one of those things where it's like, oh, you have this daughter. I don't like her. I want it to be just us. They didn't spend a lot of time with her. She spent, she was an only child. She spent a lot of time alone and she turned towards animals for friendship. Sure. Eventually in her teens, she got into horse riding and became competitive and was really good at it. The crazy thing was her mom was a small, blonde, pretty lady and Diane was growing into this like really tall kid and she actually in her full height was six foot one. What? Did you know she was that tall? Yeah, she I was didn't. super tall. You know why? Because you always see pictures of her sitting down with gorillas. You know, when you like think about that, that she already had like a bad home life, was an only child, and then she was just like uncomfortably tall. So she spent a lot of time on her own. And even as she went on to college, they didn't even support her financially, which they could have. So she finished high school and then she enrolled at UC Davis in 1950 because she really wanted to be a a veterinarian. So she went and was taking some pre-vet courses and I can so, I I think I can so relate to her on a lot of these things, but she got caught, you know, in those hard sciences that you have to, those prerequisites like chemistry and physics and biochem, molecular biology. And she just failed. She was just like, I can't even, me neither. (laughs) So she, she ended up, she was like, I can't pass these classes. It's too hard. And she had no support. Right. Right. She was like trying to support herself. She didn't have like the help from home, I guess, where they could be like, Hey, let's help you. Let's get a tutor. She was just like, well, I guess I can't do this. So she ended up transferring over to San Jose State College, graduated with a degree in occupational therapy in 1954. She got a job, I think, right after that working with with people. But then she ended up moving to Louisville, Kentucky because of the horse riding. Like she was still competing in that and she was really good. She ended up getting a job with the Cosair Crippled Children's Hospital and she was there for 10 years. Oh, wow. She really loved working with the kids. She also was like still into animals, like took in stray dogs, like, you know, I was still riding horses. Just for a second, the way I heard you, it sounded like you said she was cooking stray dogs. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> I'm congested. <laughs> I know. I'm a little congested. That's why I'm not at Megan's house. So she was still doing all that. But she had this, this thing that she was like, something's missing, right? I think we had it, you had it, I had it. And for us, it was like, I want to go to the Peace Corps. I need to go see another culture, do other things. You know what I mean? Like, I need to get out of here. So I think she had that. And she had this real need and want to go to Africa and go on safari and see animals in their natural habitat, right? Mm -hmm. So she tried to go with some friends, but it was too expensive. Actually, she got a loan and it was like a year's salary. It was $8,000 to go on this six-week trip to Kenya and what is now called Tanzania. So she was going to go Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, and then what is now known as the DRC. So Congo, she had all kinds of things. Like she had allergies. She would have asthma. She had like sometimes got pneumonia. Like she had some stuff. So she took all this medicine with her. It doesn't say how old she was when she went, but I think she's like early thirties. So she took off for Africa in 1963. They said on her trip, she actually, I saw sprained her ankle and broke her ankle in two different things. So she did something new pretty bad to her ankle. 
She got dysentery, fever, nausea, vomiting. But yeah. Traveling. She was just like really having a good time. That None of that mattered. Because she was saying how much she was interested in seeing gorillas and seeing, you know, like primates. And so her guy told her to go visit this paleoanthropologist named Louis Leakey. And he was working in Tanzania or on the Kenya-Tanzania border at this place called Olduvai Gorge. And I guess it's like a huge place where they were finding a lot of like bones, like specimen. They were doing this big archaeological dig there. She actually just went to their house. And his wife, it was Mary Leakey, she was an archaeologist. She found out where they lived. She just went there and she's like, hey, I'm just traveling. I just wanted to talk to you guys about this and found that they were like super nice, really nice people. They kind of took her in and said, yeah, you know, actually, I'm thinking there should be more studies on primates. I already have this girl. Her name's Jane Goodall. She's working on chimpanzees. (laughs) He was convinced that women were a better fit for working in the field with animals than men because he thought women were more prone to being patient. Oh. Had a higher capacity to give fully, he says. I mean... And I'm like, I agree in some ways. You know, I mean, I'm not saying like all women or all men are like this or that because it's people. But in general, I would say, I think it's pretty cool that in the 60s, he was like, I think women would be better in the field to study these animals. Yeah, that's kind of like a radical thought. So I'm going to talk about Louis Leakey for a minute because this guy is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, So he was a Kenyan British paleoanthropologist and archaeologist, and he was really into showing that humans evolved in Africa, particularly through that area he was working at, Old Duvai Gorge with his wife. So they were finding all these discoveries. And he's like, this is where man started. And then he was seeing these connections with primates and humans. So he was really interested in having this work start where people would start researching primates in their natural habitats. He set up these field researchers, which he called um, the trimates. <laughs> it started with Jane Goodall and then Diane Fossey and then Bayrute Galdicus. I think I'm saying it right. The researcher who since the 70s has been studying orangutans in um, Borneo and Sumatra. And he was well known and could get funding for things. He actually died in 1972 because oh. he, after having a heart attack in Jane Goodall's apartment in London, like he was visiting her, they were going over like field notes and whatever. And she, he full on had a heart attack. And oh, she crazy. stayed with him in the hospital and she left like the whole night. She she left in the morning around nine o'clock and he died like 30 minutes later. Wow. Uh, he's like built his Charlie's Angels of primatologists. <laughs> exactly what it is. Because <laughs> I just thought this was so interesting on how they got started with this guy helping them. You know, because I think that's what it's all about is you just need to go after the things that you feel like you would really love to do and like things will happen. None of these girls, except for Barute, who she was already educated or getting, you know, her master's or PhD, but Jane and Diane, not so much. I mean, she had her bachelor's in occupational therapy, like totally not in the field of studying primates. But Jane Goodall, so she was the first and she just straight up called him in 1957 was like, hey, I just want to meet you and talk about animals like she would always been interested in studying primates and she heard like he's the guy you should talk to this guy because he's living and working out there and she had actually gone to kenya to stay on a friend's ranch and she was just like this is it i gotta figure this out who wouldn't love jane goodall right he in 1958 he sent her to london to study primate behavior and primate anatomy and then uh says in july of 1960 he funded her to go to gombe stream national park 
And that would be like her first time to go out there. And she actually had to take her mom with her on that first trip because for safety. Jane Goodall says that her mom really encouraged her to pursue this career in primatology. It was all men. Right, it was totally right. male-dominated yeah. field at the time, of course, in the late 50s. Said women were just not accepted at that time in research, especially primatology. So yeah, she was definitely trailblazing. It's important to talk about her because if she hadn't have done it and hadn't have been who she is and made it work, then maybe Diane would have never had the opportunity. Anyway, he helped her go back to Cambridge. Um, she went to Newnham College and she got her PhD and she got it without having a bachelor's. So she was only the eighth person to be allowed to study for a PhD without having a bachelor's degree first. That's amazing. And she finished her thesis in 1966 on the behavior of free living chimpanzees. That was all her research from her first five years at the Gombe Reserve. Wild, huh? And so a little bit about Barute, she came after Diane. She was at UCLA and she met Louis Leakey because he would go around to different universities and give talks. And of course they would go. And she had already like, I want to go study orangutans in their natural habitats. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. All of these projects got a lot of funding from the National Geographic Society at the time. So he talked to them. He actually got some funding for her to go set up a research facility in Borneo. And she started working there in 1971. Um, and then with that, all her data, you know, she got her PhD from UCLA in 1978, but she ended up going back out there and staying. It's really sad. I watched this documentary that she was talking about how when she first got out there, there was so much habitat and there were so many orangutans everywhere. And just over time, she's just seen it get fragmented and decimated. Oh, man. So that just gives a little background on his role that he played in getting these female scientists in the field because he believed that they could do it and they all did it. A lot of people do field research for like a year and then they come back. To me, it's like for these people to be so dedicated their whole lives. For sure. So back to Diane Fossey. After her, this initial trip, I was a little confused on this, but it seems like she went back and, or, or maybe during that trip when she met him, she went and just did like, it was part of her safari that she went and checked out the mountain gorillas. Because it's like, you really have to hike up like this mountain and it's not easy. It's super muddy and slippery and you have to like hang on vines to get across certain things. And she said, you're right in the heart of Central Africa, so high up that you shiver more than you sweat because it's just getting colder and colder. She also wrote that there are these great old volcanoes towering up almost 15,000 feet and nearly covered with rich green rainforest, the Varangas. There's these eight volcanoes. There's a Mount Karisimbi, Mount Bisoke, and Mount Makino, the Varangas mountain range. And it spans across, like I said, those three, like Rwanda, U Uganda, and Congo on the northern slopes. And so actually in some of these areas, there was established protection for gorillas and wildlife since 1929. And on the Congo side, there's another place called Parque de Varangas, and that was established in 1922. And that was the Congo side. And then on the, so the Rwanda side, the Congo side, and then the, the Uganda side, the British had done the same. You know, since the 20s, there had been all these protections set up, but obviously it wasn't working because things weren't enforced, right? Right. Okay. So they went up, they looked for gorillas. They didn't find any, but they found a nest, like a bedding place where they counted at least 13 of them had slept the night before. And that's as close as she got to it. But she was just like, I got to make this happen. So she went back after her trip, she went back to Kentucky and she wrote up a lot of her stories from Africa, but the only place who would print them was this publication or newspaper called the Louisville Courier Journal. March, 1966, here comes Louis Leakey on like a lecture tour. And she went, of course, to see him and she brought her <laughs> publication. She's like, look, I wrote up all my things. And um, 
you know, and he's like, that's great. You know, you should really, we should really look into you doing this. And she's like, yeah, but I don't have any background. Like I don't have a biology background. He's like, oh, whatever. We'll figure that out later. You know, and she was always kind of worried about that, like imposter syndrome. I think she probably felt that a lot. And then he, she was also like, and I'm like 34 already. I'm not like, you know, a complete spring chicken, like coming out of college. And he's like, ah, it's fine. He's like, but listen, the one thing you need to do is get your appendix removed because you can't get appendicitis when you're in the bush <laughs> or else you can die. And she's like, I'm on it. So she went and had her appendix out. <laughs> Side note, I had my appendix out. I remember. Because I was about to go out on the ship and it wasn't that bad, but they're like, let's just take it out because if you go out, you can die out there. Can you even imagine getting appendicitis on the ship and just like someone having to cut into the side of you? I mean, you would definitely be, you would <laughs> yeah. be dead. Yeah, I would have had to wait for a boat to come and take me in and then wait for a small plane to come get me. And by then, I don't know, be bad news. Makes sense. But everybody thought that was crazy. They're like, yeah, it's so crazy, right? I was just going to say, it's just funny. It's like, uh, remove all of these non-vital organs to do research like you don't want any kind of interruptions you know what i mean like there should just be like a list of like non-vital organs that you can remove in order to just do your job like a hysterectomy perfect <laughs> yeah i mean seriously you once you're out there i mean it's like you can't just like get back so easily lewis like went around and he found all this support which like what a cool guy so he went to this place i don't know what it is but it's the wilkie foundation um, they had also paid to help support Jane Goodall's work. And he also hit up National Geographic because why, why not? I mean, this is perfect for them, right? So they funded it. She said that against the advice of her parents and friends, like everybody was like, don't do it. And she's like, I'm doing it. You guys can all like just F off because you weren't cool to me. And so she went to Africa on December 15th, 1966. Um, she stopped by Jane Goodall's camp nice. just to see how she had set it up so she could go and then set something up for herself. So by January 14th, so a couple weeks later, 1967, they stopped in this village of Kimbuba. And there was this guy named Alan Root. He was already somebody that she'd met before that was working out there doing field work. I think him and his wife. And there were 41 other local porters, like African porters, people to help them carry everything up. So they hauled all this equipment 4,000 feet up to this mountain. So she was at this place called Kabara Meadow, and she spent two years in a tent at this camp on the edge of this place called Kabara Meadow. It was a really like kind of a difficult place to be at, and especially that she's in a tent, right? Um, and she said the day after that Alan Root left, she was like celebrating her 35th birthday alone. And they say she was depressed and like lonely and kind of probably scared. And she didn't really learn Swahili. I guess she was terrible at <laughs> learning languages, which I can also relate to because yeah, yeah. I never really learned the language I was supposed to learn when I was a Peace Corps and you did. So she could barely speak to a couple of other Africans who stayed behind with her. Like it was just very limited. And so she kind of felt very isolated. It's very Peace Corps, right? But also she saw her first gorilla near the camp. So within five days, she made contact with her first band of gorillas. Um, it was a family of nine and she called them group one. So I guess in the beginning, you know, she didn't know what to do. She wasn't like able to spend time in the field with other people studying primates. So she was really having to figure it out on her own for the most part. Mm -hmm. And they said in the beginning, she was really eager and she actually just disturb the gorillas. And so she then started learning like, okay, how am I going to do this? Like, I don't want to disturb them. I need to like find a way to fit in or be like low key so they won't be bothered by me. So 
she started to mimic them. So she would, and you, if you watch the movie, you can kind of see this, but she was, you know, trying to do like very submissive postures and making their sounds because they have all these different, different vocalizations that mean different things. And she was just studying them and trying to learn like what meant what so she could be a very submissive member, very passively watching them. So after about six months, she started being able to get closer and closer to them. She learned the language like slightly better, but she also had experienced poachers, staff giving her a hard time, like all those kind of just stuff. Kind of negative sides. The very negative side of things. She at that time, she was also making her own collection. Like she had a, a pet rooster, which I love it that she named Desi. <laughs> That's amazing. They said she had a dog that was a boxer. Like, how did you? Anyway, she named her Cindy. And she even had some ravens that she would feed that always came around that she named Charles and Yvonne. (laughs) Um, There was like a pet monkey named Kima, which I don't know where it came from. And she's like, Kima, like she loved her, even though she tried to like bite her. But monkeys always bite. That's just the thing. (laughs) But in 1967, on July 9th, so later that year, there was some soldiers that arrived to escort her off the mountain. And this was because of there was like an outbreak, like a coup in Congo. Oh, wow. There was these European mercenaries that were fighting on the side of Mose. I don't know how to say this, Shambay, and they were white people. <laughs> and so, of course, like the Africans were kind of like, F you white people. And she was a white person. They had been told to get all foreigners And because all foreigners were trying to take over the country and to bring them in. And she said that she was in protective custody for 16 days and basically kind of kept in a cage. Oh, wow. She was able to get out of her situation, but she said that later and only two really close acquaintances, and this is something that came out probably after her death, that she was actually raped repeatedly during this time. And she never said anything because she knew that if she said it, that she would be sent home, that they would be like, you've been through too much. This is too much. You're going home. So she just kept it to herself. Oh my God. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm going back. That's some serious trauma. She was able to bribe them. They say that she was like, I'll give you this, my car. Cause she had this like cool car and some money. She's like, I'm gonna give you my car and my money and all this stuff. If you go take me here. And so eventually they took her to that place. And then those guys got arrested. And then she was with people that would help her. And so she went over to Rwanda because it was safe there. And at the time she said she was like, had no money. She was unemployed. That particular camp she had set up, she couldn't go back to it. And so she thought that Lewis would think she like failed, right? Right. But he was like, this is like a coup, you know, like you can't, it's fine. It's fine. Here, let's set you, we'll set you up somewhere else. Yeah, it's out of her control. Mm -hmm. She's not the one, you know, conducting the coup or yeah, she's just there doing research. Yeah, and but she was just like, so worried about it that somehow she would be blamed for failing to get you know the data in the field it's like wild he yeah he very he encouraged her he's like no we're gonna get more funding and you're gonna we'll find a new camp in Rwanda where it's safe you know you need to stay out of that place because there's too much bad stuff going on feeling like really down and out at that time and obviously I'm sure she was going through immense trauma at the time oh for sure had no one so yeah. somebody introduced her to this lady named Rosamond Carr. She was a little bit older, white American, and she had a property on um, the forested lower slopes of the Rurangas on the Rwanda side. She was came from like a well-to-do family, and she married this guy. I want to say I read about it, but I don't have it in front of me. And they ended up going to Africa, and she fell in love with it, fell in love with like the people, and set up her kind of like a farm there. She grew flowers. So. Oh. And apparently she was really well liked during the Rwanda genocide in the late 90s. She actually 
helped a lot of people. And afterwards, she set up two orphanages next to her property to help all the kids who had lost their families. Anyway, she's just a really amazing woman. Oh, wow. And she yeah. became really good friends and really helped Diane. And Diane really confided in her, like wrote her letters all the time. You know, in all these things people wrote up about Diane Fossey, if they say that Rosamond was like, that's not true, I would believe her. Because right. I feel like she knew her best. Because later they'll say like, oh yeah, she was an alcoholic. And Rosamond was like, no, she wasn't. Like, I mean, you could catch me drinking some wine one night and be like, she's an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, it's like, I might only do that like once in once a month. Well, let me just... <laughs> <laughs> the memory of turning the corner and seeing you and another friend of ours having, you know, I was like a little bit late for some reason to meeting you guys and you turn around and just the red or like purple, purple mouth. Oh yeah. But that was also during Peace Corps and man, they serve some big glasses of wine. <laughs> she had some really strong bonds with some certain people that I think pulled her through a lot of this. Um, she also through Rosamond, she, uh, Rosamond, she met this other, she introduced her to this other lady named Aliette de Monk, and she was a Belgian woman. And they say she was the widow, so I'm not sure, but her son and another friend of his had been murdered during, like, some of this crazy, like, coup stuff. So she was also going through a lot and alone, and I think her and Diane became good friends. I think that's one thing, because a lot of the media talks about her as being just, like, a loner, she had no friends, and she was just, like, this angry woman, and on the on the mountain but she didn't she had really close friends and she wrote to them a lot and i feel like the media lewis was like awesome he found her more funding and now she was back on track to go to the rwandan side of this mountain so she started camping back out she found actually the old group like she was studying before but it was a different group too that she hadn't seen for you know a couple of months mm -hmm. but it was too close to the congolese border she's like i can't it's too dangerous like hell no and so they kept going and she ended up finding this place that she would end up naming Karasoki, which is a 10,000 foot plateau area where they call it like a saddle between the mountains of Visoke and Karasimbi. So she kind of combined those two and called it Karasoki. Oh, okay. That is where she set up camp on September 24th, 1967. And I think it's really important because that camp is still there. Researchers still go there. And I just feel like 1967, I mean, that's a long time ago. Yeah. And to just be like, I'm hiking. This is a good spot. I think we should set up camp here. And then it's still there like 50 years later. I don't know. Yeah, that's like her legacy. Yeah, really her legacy. So she set up her tent, but later she they built a two-room cabin that she ended up staying in and she could hear the gorillas like you know beating on their chest right right remember that how so big they, they show are how big they are yeah. To other ones. <laughs> yeah but there were a lot more poachers in this area and there was more corruption happening with the park officials on the rwandan side this was something that she had to deal with so poaching and hunting was illegal in the park, but there were these different tribes, the Tutsi and the Batwa. Anyway, they had been hunting on the slopes forever. And so they were like, screw you, your laws and whatever. I'll hunt whatever I want to hunt. And a lot of these cattle herders too, cutting forests and going into the park and hunting. She's trying to do her work. They're breaking laws. They're coming in, basically killing the species she's studying. And so she kind of had to come up with her own ways of how to navigate all of that. And so she did talk to the park service people and they agreed to like increase the patrols, but it wasn't, wasn't really enough. 
So through her study, she learned a lot about the birth and death rates of mountain gorillas and their social behavior, interaction within the group. She learned that play, which is a trait that gorillas, you don't usually see them playing, was really important during their early formative years. So she got all this great information. And by the end of the summer of 1968, she had located and was tracking nine gorilla groups and was familiar with 80 of them. And she named them. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. You know how I feel about names, but... I get it. It's hard not to name something that looks like you and acts like you. Um, By this time, she was 36 and there were people offering PhD studies and they wanted her to write books. There was like adventure hikers, you know, wanting to come to camp. But she she was kind of like, let me just I just need to do this thing. Right. So she was just trying to hold out and keep saying because I think she was scared to leave. Because if she left, what would happen? So as far as the numbers when she was there, there was this guy that was there in 1960. His name was George Schaller. And he had studied the Mount Gorillas and said that there were about, at his at that time in 1960, there were about 400 Mount Gorillas. Oh. By the time she was there, it was down to a little over 200 was all she was counting. And this was because of that. Since 1948 to like the 60s, there were these freaking zoos, like I said, that they had captured and killed 60 adults. And that was just in one year to get 11 infants, which none survived. They found like baby gorillas that were dying, like clinging onto dead mothers that had been shot Jesus. or mutilated. And she would bring them back and she would nurse them. There was a couple of babies that she nursed and tried to help from getting killed to be taken to zoos. And she tried all these things to bring them back to health and reintroduce them somehow back or else, you know, find a way. And the zoos took them anyway. They're like, nope, they're ours. And they put them in a crate and they left and they eventually died. There was this other guy. He was a white, they just said a white African. So he must have grown up theirs. He was like, you know, it's really dangerous for you to stay here. And now you're pissing off all the poachers and all these other people. He's like, you need to learn how to protect yourself. There's other women that have lived alone like on their farms without their husbands or while their husbands went to war and the only way they survived was to become like a witch or a banshee i love it i mean i get it right he said you need to become a spiritual witch and learn sumu which is the native sorcery and it was big in africa and probably still is and that way people will be scared of you because they'll know that you know stuff and in in order to do this to be like seen as tough you need to like scream and yell and make crazy faces (laughs) And you can even like strike, like hit poachers or throw things at them or hurt them if you need to, because they need to know to fear you. Yeah. This was the advice she got. Yeah. I just have to say that this reminds me of our episode about having a demeanor that is off-putting to people so that they leave you alone. You know, with your machete, your like wide eyes and like make it creepy, unhinged. Yes. So she did it and it worked. She was like, the poachers were scared. She even killed some of the cattle of the herders <laughs> because they were illegally grazing in the park. Dang. I, I don't know if she actually, I did read that she took some. I've also read that she killed some. One of them she took because they stole her dog and she was like, you better give me my dog and I have your cow if you want it back. So she got her dog back that way. She was having this battle and she was hitting it with this like scare tactic and being mm-hmm. aggressive. Like it did work to keep people away to an extent, but it just made her reputation really bad. Well, yeah. If you imagine that Jane Goodall had the same kind of idea, like we wouldn't think of her the same way as we do now if she did those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It just seems that Diane Fossey might be a little more of an assertive person. Like she's willing to do those things. Well, she was scared and she was really upset 
to yeah. see what was happening to these gorillas and how their numbers had dropped. Seeing them die or, see, I mean, seeing a baby gorilla clinging to a butchered, murdered mother. Like, I, I don't know too many people that can not feel pain from that compassion also this hurt her because she was doing this and there were different researchers that would come and stay with her and they would see this and be like <laughs> like what is she doing right now <laughs> like maybe she's crazy or we don't know because they would just come in to do research and then she would be doing that other people said she's racist they called her a racist because she would do all this stuff and complain about africans mm. other people would say no she was not racist she would do this to anybody if you're like trying to come in and encroach in the park or scare the gorillas or take gorillas it didn't matter mm. that's what she didn't want i agree with that there was another issue in 1969 apparently her cabin caught fire and her chickens died Oh, Jen, I'm sorry that you had to read about chickens dying. It's very sad. She got bit by a dog and she actually had to be carried off the mountain because she came down with rabies. Oh my God. She had to get all the rabies injections and then she was okay. She also had like chest pains. They thought maybe she had tuberculosis. Um, she requested that these census takers keep tabs on the gorilla populations while she was gone. And so her first student that she got as a census taker, it says he, they dabbled in hashish. I'm sorry. That's amazing. Just on the weekends, Jen, sometimes after five. <laughs> she always had like problems with different researchers and I could see that because she wants things to be a certain way right? right she really cares she's so protective and she's so worried like she needs it to be a certain way she didn't want them to be high yeah it was like very few researchers that lived up to her standards I guess and there was only four actually that they said that she really liked at least initially one of her favorites early on was this guy named Sandy Harcourt she felt like he really respected the gorillas and was really a good guy but later they did not get along. And I feel like it's just the scientific community, our academic community, that they can just really... That's so true. It's like if you don't fall in line with what everybody uh, generally thinks, how you should act or do or whatever, people will talk about you. And that gets around. I feel like the academic circle is actually really small. It is. It's like once you get a bad reputation with like one person who might be respected by other people, it would be hard to then build back your reputation. Especially that she didn't go the academic route that most people did and she was doing things her own way but she, you know she's the one that was there doing it and she can do it however she wants to you if you watch documentaries and you you know look up diane fossey and you'll see all this old footage i guess vintage footage of her with the mountain girls and it's really sweet actually and so that was all filmed by this guy from national geographic called bob campbell and so he came out with her in 1970 like very beginning like january 1st 1970 and they he followed her basically to go to see these different gorillas all the ones that she had named and one in particular that she was very very fond of that she had watched since it was Small was a young gorilla named Digit. Filming all this, it was like the first friendly physical contact ever recorded between the wild mountain gorillas and humans. It showed on National Geographic later. That's when people started to get really excited about it. Because the thing is, is that, and I didn't mention this earlier, but they're actually very chill and very friendly animals. I could not find anywhere there was ever an attack or a death by gorilla by anybody. I mean, maybe there has been in the wild that was never recorded, but I couldn't find anything. I found a couple of attacks when they're in an enclosure, nothing in the wild. They're And they're very like sweet. And if you watch these videos, it's really amazing. So in January 1970, when all that came out is when she became kind of famous. She went back to go to school to get her PhD at Darwin College in Cambridge in England. 
And they say she went for like a three month term. And I wonder if they're just like, just come take these clouds, do all the things and then go back to the field. And she said during that time, she felt really out of her element. But and this is her words. She knew that she had to obtain a union card in the scientific field. And that that was to give her findings validity and obtain grant support. She said, without the big degree, you don't cut much ice, no matter how good you are. It's the truth. Even though she was doing it. And so every time she would leave, it was really hard for her to find a replacement. She would just worry so much. But she was finally given her doctorate degree in 1976. But she was like back and forth during that time. And they say through 1972, she spent much of her time with group four where Digit was. And she called him that because he had this little twisted broken finger. And she had been observing him since he was five in 1967. This is what her autobiographers wrote. It says, Diane was often mobbed by the youngsters of group four who treated her almost as one of themselves. Digit in particular seemed to welcome her presence. On such occasions, note-taking would be forgotten and Diane would revel in the pure joy of being accepted. She groomed her friends and allowed them to groom her. She dozed with them in the sun. She tickled the infants and exchanged commiserative belches with the other older females. <laughs> That's funny. These intimate contacts she described as just too thrilling for words and was often moved to tears by them. Oh, wow. Um, Fossey wrote in Gorillas in the Mist about Digit. He seemed pleased whenever I brought strangers along. He would completely ignore me to investigate any newcomers by smelling and touching them their hair, their clothing. If I was alone, he often invited play by flopping over on his back and waving his stumpy legs in the air and looking at me smiling as if to say, how can you resist me? <laughs> at such times, I fear my scientific detachment dissolved. I mean, how can it not, right? Right, yeah. As he grew older, she gave him a lot of space. And it says, on a rainy day with Digit off to the side and the group embraced and against the cold of a downpour, Fosse intentionally sat on the opposite edge and huddled in one of like the, like they're all huddled under the rain, basically. Yeah. And she sat on the opposite edge of the huddled forms. And after a few minutes, she felt an arm around her shoulder and looked up and he was just like hugging her oh my and god just like looking down at her and he was patting her head and then he I just can't. sat down next to her and then she actually laid her head on his lap and all of this was captured on film by that guy bob campbell digit became like the poster child for these mountain gorillas national geographic they put this on tv in 1973 and, and they called it the search for great apes so she really liked this guy because he he's a cool guy. I saw an interview with him. He was married. Pretty much everybody's like, yeah, they had a thing. Each time he left, he would say, I'm going to go talk to my wife. But he would come back and it was the same. And then they say in November 1971, she found out she was pregnant. They like really had a thing. They really had a thing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because cool. they're just up there. Like, I get it. Things happen. So she found out she was pregnant. A Belgian woman doctor drove her from the Congo, it says, to get an abortion. Because oh. she was like, I can't have a baby and do my research. Right. I mean, it's just like, this is the thing that women deal with. Do I lose my research and something bad could happen to these animals that she obviously loved like family that she was so connected to and she was so determined to protect. And she's like, I can't have a baby. I cannot do that because then I won't be able to keep doing this. Right. I'm having so many thoughts about this because you mentioned that it was like she felt like she had to go and get that higher degree for credibility reasons, right? And I think about someone like Dr. Schmidt, who we talked about in episode two, who was given an honorary degree after doing all of his work and was never questioned. Um, and and it's like she's a woman. She has to like do all these things. And it's like she's getting pre if she gets pregnant, she loses credibility. 
And then she might lose out on a, a field mm-hmm. season, like you said, and and losing contact with the animals and what happens to them and all of that. It's like, oh, and getting angry and yelling, trying to stop poachers. Right. And it's like if she were a man, maybe she wouldn't have to do all of those things or worry about that. When you mentioned that she like really felt like she had to get that higher degree, I was like, you know what? I remember making a joke in our in our episode about Dr. Schmidt that like we should just do your work. And then at the end, someone gives you a degree. That would be amazing. But really, it's because he was a dude. Exactly. I kind of feel that way about my yeah. work in the field for 10 years. I'm like, where's my honorary degree? Damn it. Right. Problem is, she felt she had to terminate her pregnancy. So she went and had that done. But then a couple of days later, she started hemorrhaging oh, no. and almost died. They had to take her off the mountain again and she had to go get surgery. And kind of after all that, things just became really more difficult. She's dealing with all that emotionally and Mm -hmm. here's you know this guy and i'm sure he felt really bad but he's like okay i'm not gonna leave my you know it was just too much end of may 1972 they just kind of like okay let's just say goodbye right and they say for the next couple of months that she drank a lot in the daytime like daytime drinking and i'm like rightly so yeah like what else has she got she's sad she just lost her somebody she loves right she had a you know end of pregnancy i mean it's like she's alone i'm like i, I just can't like the judgment i'm just like yeah and it's not even just the judgment it's the double standard that like some guy breaks up with you or you break up with him or whatever and the way that they, i mean look at oh my god i this feels like a soapbox moment for me look at Kanye. Kanye West right now and the like just (laughs) horrible blatantly abusive behavior he is exhibiting to the world and people are not they're not getting it you know but if if he were a woman and acting the way that he's acting it would be like the most harsh judgment I mean look at Taylor Swift doesn't even act that way she just writes songs about people and she gets like not that I'm like a Swifty or anything but I'm just saying that there's like I've never heard that (laughs) there's like this double standard and definitely in the scientific community that double standard is like magnified by a billion you mentioned she was already feeling like an imposter syndrome all these like things and make a choice to lose a baby and then not being with that person that maybe you loved and you had this connection with and I don't know just have your bloody mary for a week day drink do whatever you need to do partake in the hashish whatever you need (laughs) whatever you need to do (laughs) seriously so during this time like it was kind of rough like she also was having a hard time keeping the camp together because she was living from like grant to grant right a lot of times the money did not get to her she had insomnia she had sciatica in her right hip which Jeez, yeah. Still had the chronic pneumonia. She had emphysema, which she did. She was a heavy smoker, apparently. So that probably didn't help <laughs> that situation. She also had a severe calcium deficiency, probably because of her diet. You know, mm-hmm. she snapped a bone in her ankle and she reset it herself. And it just never healed what? well again. What? She also, I think, got hepatitis. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then she had all this paperwork, you know, because like, imagine no emails, but yeah, she's having to like, type all this correspondence back and forth. So it was getting harder and harder for her to get in just in the field to spend time with the gorillas. Right. They say in 1977, she went down the mountain to see some doctors because she was having so much chest pain. And they thought they saw a tubercular lesion on her lungs. Mm. And so she went to Brussels and they discovered actually she had a, a splintered rib. And it had caused bone splinters and they were like floating around. Oh. And so they fixed it with surgery. I've had like a bruised rib from after a derby, just like, you know, a really bad fall. Um, and that's awful. Staying up there and doing what she did was not easy. And to make matters even worse, a few months later, she was back on the mountain. This was in January 2nd, 1978. There was a researcher working there. His name was Ian Redmond. And she was he, he was one of her like favorite researchers. He was out doing field work. 
and he came upon a black, this is a quote, black and shapeless mound hazed with an aura of blowflies and a huge corpse of a gorilla mutilated almost beyond recognition. The head was missing and the arms were terminated in blood encrusted stumps from which shattered slivers of bone protruded. The belly and chest had been deeply ripped and gashed. Everywhere, the once sleek black hair was matted and spiked with coagulated blood and fouled with body fluids. And that was Digit. (gasps) Oh, Jen, I can't handle that right now. On top of all of that, it's like, then this happens, this like massive amount of grief that she probably went through. Kind of, it kind of broke her. So Digit had been massacred, obviously, by poachers and for $20 for his head and his hands. And she, she wrote of this, there are times when one cannot accept facts for fear of shattering one's being. As I listened to Ian's terrible words all of Digit's life since my first meeting with him as a playful little ball of black fluff 10 years earlier poured through my mind. From that dreadful moment on, I came to live within an insulated part of myself. It was the first time poachers had attacked any gorilla in her working groups. Jesus. And so a lot of people thought that it was personal. I did watch this. It says there actually happened to be a BBC film crew filming there. They had arrived on the day of his burial. And Fosse encouraged them to film it so that people would see what happened there. And maybe they would be more supportive and more helpful. Later, there were two other members of his group that were also killed, including Macho, which is the mother of a three-year-old who was wounded and later died from gangrene. And the gorillas were dying at large numbers. There were 36 heads that had been brought down the mountain in 1976. 36 heads. Um, They say after failing to resuscitate another baby gorilla who was gangrenous because of a snare around its foot. After that, it just pushed her over the edge and she fell into a deep depression. She was really trying to get the Rwandans to care about the gorillas. And so she launched this thing. She called it the Digit Fund. I think it's they still have it today. And it was basically a set of funding just to staff and train anti-poachers patrols like security to protect these gorillas. And that was all she could see that to do at that point. Now things are different. You know, we have all these like great community outreach programs and, you know, people, I think now things have changed there and there is a lot of outreach and support and involving community. And I think that's what Jane Goodall has done really well Mm -hmm. is that she's, involved everybody uh, to be part of the conservation of their own wildlife instead of like find the importance of this animal whether they get money from tourism like how can we make this animal worth something more than a twenty dollars for a head like we have to make them feel the value of this animal alive i think at that time she wasn't there yet she was like i need action now to stop this And so she started the Digit Fund and that guy, Sandy Harcourt, that she really liked. Mm -hmm. So he had gone back to England and he founded this nonprofit called the Mountain Gorilla Project. And he was like, yeah, if any money comes in for this, I'm going to hold it for you for the Digit Fund. But she found out later that the money that was given to the fund had been he had taken some of it and he had given it to the Rwandan government. What? It doesn't say what for. He insisted his group was better qualified to decide how to save gorillas than her. And so she was pissed. She was like, that's mine. I have this program here. You're not here. You don't know what the hell, right? Yeah. Uh, There was also another friend in the U.S., they say another supposed friend called Robinson McMickelvane, I think. McMickelvane, he was also diverting money from the Digit Fund 
to fund his own like American wildlife fund. Jesus. Because she's out there in the field and here's these people like taking the money because they think, oh no, she's crazy. She doesn't need this for that. And then he was, they were using it for other things. She said at this point, she felt like under siege, right? Yeah. She had like all her energy now was at protecting the gorillas. So like research, writing, all that came second. She had changed. She wasn't as soft as she was in the past. She was now like a much harder woman. She felt like she had to push to get these things because, you know, here are these men. Yeah. (laughs) Like you're taking her money, right? This is like when Sigourney Weaver as Diane Fossey just like gears up. You know what I mean? Oh, (laughs) Sigourney is amazing. Like you need to, when we watch it today. Oh my God. Watch it today. It's on this day. Just so, just, you know, like you've been talking and because we're not in the same room, you can't see that I've been sobbing. side while you're talking about this why would people ever think that she wouldn't be angry or just like that's beyond me but she's just a crazy woman women aren't supposed to get angry and act up it's so frustrating so at this point she doesn't trust anyone yeah right and she becomes more reclusive she's more demanding of her students and researcher researchers that came and they were like this lady is you know, this and that, and they would leave. Some people really liked her and were like, that's just how she is, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like I could have worked with her Mm -hmm. because I'm that kind of person that I'll just, I love like quirky scientists and I don't care how crazy their personality is. I usually get along with everyone like that (laughs) because I'm just like, wow, you're something, you know, and I just like it, you know, but people go there with these expectations Mm -hmm. thinking how things are going to go. Well, you know what? That's her research camp and it's going to go how she wants it to go and they didn't like it and they would leave and then, you know, make rumors about her and that she was a manic depressive, that her gorillas were being killed because of her. And when she heard those things, it just hurt. She doesn't want to be the reason she's trying to protect them. And she wrote on hearing these rumors, and this is in her words, she woke at 1 a.m. She said, got up and lit the gas lamp and sat in bed, went into a sweat, then it chilled and threw up and felt like I was going berserk. Because I mean, what can she do from there? Yeah. The thing is, is her reputation was bad at this point, but the patrols were working. The staff she had hired of nine men were like really loyal to her more loyal than the students and the researchers that came up. And they had confiscated thousands of snares and traps. They got spears, bows, and other weapons. One time she burned all the belongings of a very bad, aggressive poacher and and was given a $600 fine. (laughs) And this is is also the time that they took her dog, Cindy, and she like took one of their (laughs) cattle and like they had to trade it out. In four months, they had, the patrol had found 987 traps. And the park guards, just the guards that were always there, had found zero. Well, you know, they're in on it. Yeah, that's what I mean. And here was this guy, you know, Sandy, who was giving money to the government and look, they're doing nothing. And now there's fewer poachers in the area. A lot of people were not happy with how she, they say she had gone bushy, which is, I guess, like (laughs) what happens when you spend too much time. Like wild. Yeah, like she's just out of her mind. And they were trying to actively get her out like other researchers. Of course, Sandy Harcourt basically said that she was too close to the animals and it was causing anthropomorphism back then in the scientific community and even now you know like people aren't they're very much against anthropomorphizing your subjects of your study or whatever yeah sure there's some other scientists that were like no you know this kind of projection of the observer it's not bad they believe that anthropomorphism can be used as a tool so there's this other guy franz de wall he wrote he's author of chimpanzee politics he doesn't think that there's a bias he says like there's no other way he says to look at these animals because they're so close to us And they talked about Jane Goodall's been accused of this. And I'm sure a lot of, especially people studying primates have been accused of it. The the guy who was originally there, George Schaller, when he studied gorillas, he's like, they're basically like, 
human children, it's very hard not to project your emotions and your feelings onto these guys. And, you know, like I, I have my own feelings about uh, anthropomorphizing if you're doing research or something, for sure. Also, at the same time, I can see what you're talking about, that they're so close to us. Mm-hmm. There were also like at that and still are two schools of thought when it comes to conservation, like theoretical conservation and active conservation. And she was more for active conservation. If she saw that a gorilla was in a snare, she was going to help them, set them free and try to help them get better and get back to the field. Other scientists were like, we well, shouldn't have fear because that's like what happens. And she's like, yeah, but that's not natural. Right. I feel like what you're talking about is the difference between conservation management and just like a research study. Exactly. And a lot of these people were like academic, really into research. Document what happens. That's all you need to do to be unattached from them, which I think is impossible. Well, and she's been there so long. I mean, obviously, she's already conducted the preliminary research on biology of these animals. At this point, she should be moving into some kind of conservation management. It only makes sense. Like people, I feel like we're jealous. They wanted to go there and do their own research and they were just trying to find ways. And she was very outspoken and she was pissed. I don't blame her at all. So in 1979, National Geographic was like, listen, you are supposed to write a book on all this research and we're going to stop funding you unless you write the book. She was already having like a lot of hip pain. She was like, okay, the patrols have been very effective. And so she's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to go write this book. She also met this other primatologist, Dr. Glenn Hosvater. (laughs) He was from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. They became friends, then more than friends. And he was like, why don't you come to Cornell as a visiting professor? You can write your book and do this. And she's like, all right. Around 1980 to 82. Are you saying that they were lovers? They were lovers. (laughs) she really needs a good hug yeah so from 1980 to 82 she taught at Ithaca and then she kind of healed um she said that she felt herself falling into place again for the first time since Digit was killed so that was in a letter to a friend and her students voted her best professor of the year so she was like starting to feel human again if they had had uh, ratemyprofessor.com back then she would have <laughs> she would have done well <laughs> she'd been in yeah we should start a page for Diane Fossey rate my professor I have never even heard of that it's great while she was gone from Karasoke the her research center another one of her very close gorillas died it doesn't say how it just said that there were some of her other researchers they tried to come over uh, come and take over the research center while she was gone doing her book and teaching and actually that guy Sandy Harcourt was in charge Mm. and under his management they said the camp was neglected most of the equipment was stolen and ruined from neglect and poaching was back in full swing Now they're all like, oh, shit, she was actually doing a really good job. Can you come back? So she finished her book and she went back in June of 1983 and she had been gone for three years. And within three months, she restored the camp and restored the digit fund, the anti-poaching, anti-poaching, anti-poaching poachers, the conservation people. Yeah. Or like a conservation officer. Yeah. So she had the, you know, she had her team back for the digit fund out checking for traps. They destroyed 1700 traps. Jesus. Right. When she got back within three months. I love that little piece of vindication right there for her. I know. So in 1983, her book was published and it was called Gorillas in the Mist. Everybody loved it, but it was poorly received by the scientific community. Of course. Mostly from people who were like researchers that had been there in the past. 
So she's like, whatever. And 1984, all three Rwandan newspapers were being really nice to her and saying good things. The problem is, is they had started bringing tourists up to see the gorillas. And some of the gorillas died from diseases. Oh, yeah. So as much as tourism is good. It's a double-edged sword. Right. And maybe the safety protocols weren't there. I'll just say like now that you can go to Rwanda and see the gorillas. But there are definitely, you're never supposed to touch them, get close. Like there's definite protocols to keep them safe. So now that's on my bucket list. So I was telling my husband, I was like, when are we going to go do this? He's like, that sounds really dangerous. I'm like, it's not. It's totally fine. It actually isn't. It's actually very safe. So a couple of her parrots, I guess she kept some pet parrots, have been poisoned. And she said, it says she found a wooden puff adder on her doorstep late one night in October, meaning that there was somebody that knew like the native sorcery had planted it there, which would be like a curse of death. Right. So I know a puff adder kills a lot of people. When they say a wooden puff adder, I couldn't figure out more about what that meant. Did somebody carve something and leave it as like a omen? That's what I'm thinking. This was in 1984. December 27, 1985. Um, one of her staff that was uh, African had not seen her, noticed that this there was some damage to the side of her cabin. Oh, they no. went inside and they found her dead laying on her back. I saw two things. One was that she was laying over her bed. Another one was that she was on her back. But either way, she had been basically macheted in the face and struck on the back of the head. It had split her skull from the forehead to her mouth and then like a diagonal. And, And they said it was so deep and so precise, like with such a sharp machete that there was hardly blood. Wow. But if you watch other documentaries now, they wonder if it was staged or happened somewhere and then was... And she was moved. Yeah. Her whole room was just like crazy. There was a Christmas tree she had made with presents for her staff that were all, everything was like upturned, like a mess, but nothing was missing. Nothing was stolen. And she had like a gun next to her in her hand. Yeah. You could tell maybe she was trying to load it, but she couldn't. But nobody stole the gun. She had a thousand dollars. Nobody stole it. Someone got paid to do that for sure. She also had hair in her, both of her hands from a white person. There was an, a lady, she was with the consulate's office and she actually took samples and they never really came back with whose hair it was. You should watch this documentary. It's called Secrets in the Mist by National Geographic. And they actually, there was a research student staying there. His name was Wayne McGuire. And he was just like this nerdy white guy. And he liked her. He was like, yeah, she would go off sometimes. But, you know, I just let it go in one ear and out the other because I knew how she was. Like, it's fine. He actually later got blamed for murdering her. And it's really sad. You should watch his interviews now. He had already left, but they had a trial without him even being there and accused him of her murder. And the other weird thing is like her house was made of tin, right? Like corrugated tin. And then on the inside was like mats, you know, like woven mats for the walls, like insulated. So somebody had cut a hole under her bedroom window through the tin and then tore through the mat, maybe crawled in that way. And they're like, how would she not have even heard that? The only thing people could have maybe thought is that she was really out of it. She did have insomnia and maybe she had like taken something to help her sleep and she was just like mm-hmm. really out of it or something. Her chief tracker was this was this guy, Emmanuel Relicana, and he was arrested saying that he was accomplice with her, with Wayne. And later they found him hanging in his prison cell and they said it was a suicide. No, there's, there's a giant conspiracy to get rid of her. Too much true crime. Yeah, for all of our true crime people, you should definitely look. It's just so wildly wrong. So her autobiographer said that she wasn't murdered by a vengeful poacher. 
which is what some people were saying, but by a hired assassin because she was interfering with the, they say the exploitation of the park. And she had just been granted a two-year extension on her visa. I just feel really bad for that guy. You should watch it. He's so sad, that guy, Wayne McGuire. So a little about him is he actually came from, um, he was like the first to go to school in his family. He really worked hard to study and put himself through school. And he was so excited to do this, all he ever wanted to do. And he went and did research with her. And after all this happened, he had to completely end his career. It's just really sad. It's really sad for him that he ended up um, becoming, he said he works with people who deal with trauma. He seems like a really nice guy. Like everybody's like, that guy Mm -hmm. didn't do it. But he couldn't go back to the country. Imagine if he faced the trial, they would have put... (laughs) They would have killed him. And just to have somebody that was blamed for it, it's really hard to get it through the government in Rwanda to take any other action. They're just like, well, we already said this guy did it and it's done. Case closed. She had a family plot for all the mountain gorillas family that were killed. And she was actually buried next to Digit in that family plot. And I do have a picture of her gravestone and everything and we'll post it. But yeah, I feel like she's where she wanted to be Yeah, in her burial. There was so much more she could have done, but what, what she did do has made it to where by 2018, they were no longer listed as critically endangered because their numbers had gone from, you know, 248 when she was there all the way up to over a thousand. And I don't think that that would have been possible if she wasn't there and did her time in those mountains and stayed there and protected them. Mm -hmm. I don't fault her for a damn thing. I think she's amazing. She did something that no one else had done or maybe would have done. Yes. And for all her faults, it just makes her more human. I do like that she isn't this like perfect person. It's amazing what she accomplished, even going through everything that she went through. And the fact that she could even go back there after, especially after Digit dying and being murdered, brutalized, you know, like, and her being able to make it through that. And and then go and write her book and then come back. That's amazing. It's amazing. That's that is perseverance. You know, there's something to be said to everybody out there who has something in them that they want to go do something, do some sort of research or go beyond and do something amazing that you feel like, well, maybe I don't have the right education or I'm not good enough. And they or they have that imposter syndrome. Just go do the damn thing that you think if you don't do and you take the, you know, another road, you could fail at that, you know, like at least fail trying to do something. (laughs) want to do yeah and if you really want to do it and you really love it you're gonna be successful guaranteed that's my my message sadly in 2020 one of uganda's rare silverback mountain gorillas who was named rafiki was killed by hunters this was just in june of 2020 um there was a guy who confessed and he was saying that they were out doing some other hunting and that they came across the gorillas and that they were protecting themselves but everyone's like yeah and guess what in january of 2021 he was sentenced to 11 years in prison and that was the first poaching event since 2011 Wow. And that's according to the International Gorilla Conservation Program, which is, they have a cool website too, and they do a lot of cool yeah. stuff. Anyway, I thought that was cool that there's, you know, some pretty harsh penalties now. What she started has been working. Also, in that same article, they said the Ugandan Wildlife Authority shared that, and this was in the time of this article, but there were two baby gorillas that were born to two different troops in the park. Oh. So that was pretty cool. Yay. Um, some other more recent news, and this is sad. This was from last month and we I, we may have talked about it that Ozzy at the Atlanta Zoo 
He was the oldest male gorilla at that time. He died at age 61. And they usually only lived to be around 40, maybe 50 mm-hmm. tops. So he was the world's oldest male gorilla and the third oldest gorilla in the world. I don't think we talked about him, but I think we posted a story about him dying. To go back to the Karasoke Research Center after she passed away or after she was killed in 1985. So they did manage to keep it going It did close down during the time of the genocide in Rwanda, obviously, because it was just they had to bring everybody down. It was just too dangerous. So the Rwanda staff continued to monitor the gorillas during that period whenever they could, which is just amazing. But they had to evacuate, they say, five times. And the facility was destroyed three times, rebuilt twice, and eventually relocated to another area, maybe close by. But they say despite the constant threat of war, it continued to upgrade its capacity for scientific research. And they say that the gorillas survived the war years in pretty good condition, despite the increased numbers of snares and poachers. So they actually pulled through, probably just from the little bit of work that the people that stuck around did. They say that the buildings, even though they're now overgrown by vegetation, it's still a monument. Her house is still there and it's still a monument to her and her work as the first camp that was dedicated exclusively to the study of mountain gorillas. That's amazing. And that there's a Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund that continues to operate the Karasoki Research Center from its regional research center headquarters in Musanze, I believe. They now have over... 100 staff members, the great majority of whom are Rwandan, which is good. Yeah, local capacity. And they focus on research protection and monitoring. They provide human communities in the area with education, health, and economic development programs. They provide conservation education through primary, secondary schools and adult community members through a variety of media. The Fosse Fund supports and has helped renovate schools and a health clinic near the park and supports clean water, parasite treatment, and prevention programs that reduce transmission of disease from people to gorillas, as well as improving the quality of lives in those communities. Here's another cool thing. Ellen DeGeneres gave a bunch of money to basically build a permanent home in Rwanda for the work of the Fosse Fund to protect critically endangered mountain gorillas. So now it's called the Ellen Campus, and it's supposed to open this month. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then if you go on their website, and I'll give you the website, it's designed specifically for scientists who are helping to save mountain gorillas. So the Ellen campus, it's really nice. If you look at that page and you look at all the donors, I guess it's like the biggest donors are in like the biggest print and then it gets smaller print. (laughs) (laughs) One of the big donors, aside from Ellen and Portia, is Sigourney Weaver. Hey! No, she's still really involved because when she made the movie, she really connected with Diane and she really, and she spent time with the mountain gorillas. Like she was really physically there. And so it really became something that's important to her, her whole life. And she still does kind of like voiceover when it's like some uh, documentary for Diane Fossey. Yeah. Um, just Google some, I mean, YouTube some stuff and you'll see it. Jen, you're making me cry so much in this episode. Oh my God. I know it's really, it's really a hard story. And I wasn't sure because I've heard good things and bad things, mm-hmm. but I feel like I hope I portrayed it in a way of her being just a really good human. That did all she could do. Maybe she wasn't perfect in some people's eyes. Obviously, the organization to support is the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. Nice. And that is at gorillafund.org. There are more than 50 years of successful conservation work in saving gorillas based on a holistic model with four key pillars, which is protecting gorillas. And that is daily sustained protection. They're still doing it. Nice. Because that's the only reason they're not extinct. Um, Conducting science. And they have the long, it's the longest running gorilla research sites. 
um, training conservationists and they're saying education is key to empowering people and creating the next generation of conservationists. And they work directly with African educational institutions and train hundreds of young scientists each year. Um, and the fourth pillar is helping communities. And I kind of talked about that. Already. Yeah. So. That's very cool. So you can go, you can donate money straight, or you can adopt a gorilla from their troops. I thought that was kind of cool. Mm. Oh, and I looked up their charity score since you brought it up last time. <laughs> it's 97.9. It's a four-star rating. There you go. So you can give with confidence to this charity. Perfect. There you go. Anyway, so I know that was long, but I just... That was amazing. It's like I'm trying to decide, am I going to go watch Gorillas in the Mist or not? I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> you know before i you should watch that um secrets in the mist the documentary that where that guy who was her research student um wayne mcguire you really kind of just feel so bad for him anyway you should watch that and listen to what all they did try to do to get to the bottom of what happened to her and it just it's yeah unsolved so megan i don't know yeah. i feel like what would you put in your emergency preparedness kit for this? I mean, there's so many things, right? You just have to choose the thing that you feel like is is the biggest uh, threat, which might be other um, other scientists. scientists? Yeah, <laughs> it might be poachers, you know. But I feel like poachers, you can work with uh, communities, and you you know, I feel like they found a solution, you know, for that in a way. Yeah, and it's still out there, right? I'm thinking that really the only thing that comes to mind, um, because you just like tore my heart out a bunch today, is uh, that I would I'm need uh, just a box of tissues, but like reusable. And a, bo and a bottle of wine. <laughs> and a bottle of wine. Yeah, a box of reusable tissues and a bottle of wine. Oh, just handkerchiefs? <laughs> reusable tissues. Didn't we already talk about handkerchiefs with... Uh... We, well, yeah, I mean, this is just the other side of handkerchiefs from uh, Dr. Schmidt's story, right? It's like... He, his story was pretty tragic, but also he had like a long and storied career where yeah. people respected him. And then you look at Diane Fossey and she was like, just shit on. Uh -huh. And that's like, I, you need like, you need like bulletproof handkerchiefs for Diane Fossey. You know what I mean? And Maybe a bottle, a bottle of, wine. of wine. What was her drink of choice? That's really what we need to know. <laughs> I really, really hope that she did come back as a ghost and is like hugging all the gorillas. And living with them. I mean, I'm already imagining, even though I don't believe in these things, <laughs> I'm imagining some like a ghosty silhouette of her, you know, frolicking around with a ghosty silhouette of Digit. And now I'm going to cry about that. So yeah, I hope that that happened. Thanks, Jen. Sorry for the sadness. But hey, we'll bring it up a notch in our episode, which will be coming out hopefully maybe by the end of this month with our uh, for our Patreon. So you can check that out. And if you would like to become a Patreon, just go to our website, click the link, and it's as easy as that. Another way you can support us is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. If you give us a five-star review, we'll send you a sticker. Another way you can support is go to our website and check out our sponsors. They're all zero-waste or eco-friendly businesses that support us and we love them. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and and wherever you get your podcast, Stitcher, click that follow button. That'll help us out as well. You can also send us ideas for topics that you would like to Crazy hear. Crazy stuff you found online. You can send that to our email or DM us on Instagram. And until next time. Don't die out there. Bye. Bye. I just want to say real quick that because I was in uh, dance for so long,
Uh, anytime I hear the name Fosse, all I can think about is jazz hands. Fosse! I never took dance. I was not of that. I was forced. Forced into the dance world, Jen. My mom was like, here, let's go try these different things. And I think I tried, uh, what is it, gymnastics? Okay. And it was like such a huge failure. I was just like, yeah, I just, I don't flip. Like my body doesn't do thing, things. Yeah. You have to have like a real flexible spine for that business. Something. But when you're real riddled with anxiety as a child, it's hard to get a flexible spine. <laughs> this is probably going to be an outtake. I don't know if we, have we talked about gymnastics before on this podcast? <laughs> Maybe. I don't think so. I might have. I, maybe I've just told you the story about how I was uh, in this gymnastics thing. And I ended up just I mean, it was awful. I like fell a bunch. It was crazy. But the a second side story to about gymnastics is that when I first started gymnastics, all the super cool, cool girls in my school were in gymnastics. They're like, you know, like tiny and long hair and all of this. And we were yeah. in a circle doing mm -hmm. doing like, like a split. Yeah, like the cheerleaders. And the, then there's me. And I was like, I was a little bit awkward. And so <laughs> we're in this like circle and everybody has their legs split open, you know, like toes, your feet are with your people on either side of you. And we're like, you know, stretching. So you're breaching out in front of you. Uh -huh. And I 1000% tooted. And it was like, <laughs> you, do you remember that gymnastics floors are like raised up a little bit? So it like reverberates. <laughs> it was like, and I was like, and that's it. That's the end of my gymnastics career. What did they do? Were they just like, oh my God, man. Right. Well, they just no, I mean, do you, you know how my face, I have like a problem with, I blush a lot. Like it's very easy to make me turn colors. The, I was just going to say oh. the shades of red, oh, you must have turned and your eyes would have gotten all watery. Definitely. It was. <laughs> It's so traumatic. I mean, it's vivid in my mind. Just the toot that happened. I remember my hair was like awful that day. Everything about it was and it was like these girls who were like, Oh, my God, did you just like toot? Like that was, <laughs> did you just fart? You know, like that was oh, the situation God. I was in. Oh, God. Did they have big bows in their hair too? Jen, I have a picture. Like I have a picture of me. Some people who know me very well have seen it. Um, it's, uh, my mom had them like bought them, but I don't even freaking know why, uh, she bought them. It's like one of those things where you pose for like your sports picture. And there I am in my long sleeve, no leg gymnastics, leotard, just b giant bow, so much curly hair. It is awful. It's awful. Oh my God. Such a great memory. She wanted so badly for you to be. She, she that. really wanted that for me, but I was the girl who just tooted, was embarrassed <laughs> and fell off of the uneven bars and just slammed straight into the vault. I mean, so many things, so many things. I was pretty much that one too, but there was a lot of, I was really like angst ridden. So I was like, man. <laughs> I did get a participation trophy one time at the end, after they gave away all the trophies, they were like, we want to give a very special trophy to a young lady today who really gave it her all like that situation. <laughs> Best attendance. You know what? That's uh, perseverance. That's what, that's what I learned. So we're bad at sports and that's why we became Peace Corps volunteers and biologists. Exactly. Because.